Well, good morning, church. Merry Christmas to all of you. Why don't you turn to the person to the left and right, tell them Merry Christmas. Good to see you today. It is so great to see familiar faces and new faces. Um, again, if you uh, are coming in a little bit later, there are some seats here at the front. They're always first-class seats if you want to make your way here. That'd be great. So let me pray for us, and we'll begin our time in God's Word together. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for your love to us. We thank you for the way that you've gathered here today. Um, we thank you for the festive seasons and the holidays and the rests and the family that we get to enjoy. Our Lord and God, for this next segment of time, I pray that you would lift up all of our hearts and our eyes towards you, uh, so that those who know the gospel very, very well would be moved and surprised once more. Uh, but those who uh, don't believe in it or have never heard of it before, I will be intrigued and open and curious to what you have to say in your word. We commit these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if we haven't met before, my name is Elliot. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Point. Kids, don't forget, if you um, need a coloring paper, there are plenty available. And if you identify as a kid, uh, I believe we can give one of those to you as well. Uh, but you should have received two coloring papers, kids. So um, one of it is an empty tomb, right? You'll see two figures. I want you to not color that for now. So do the other one first, and I'll come back to the second picture in just a moment. I'll invite you to color that on with me. Uh, and the rest of you guys, if you've got a sermon outline, it's all words anyway, but you can follow on with that as well. Let me ask you a question. Have you heard of the expression, talk is cheap? Have you heard of that expression before? The idea behind that saying is that it's easier to say something than it is to do something. Yeah, talk is cheap. Uh, Clement back there likes going around telling people he's very good at Taekwondo. You sometimes see him doing these ones, right? Kicking around. And then you look at him, right? Everyone turn around and look at Clem right now. Look at him right now, right? He's walking away, right? You look at his tiny frame and then you're like... Now, someone loves your tiny frame. That's fine, okay? <laughs> and you look at him, and you're like, yeah, right, yeah? That's kind of big talk, boy, right? Talk is cheap. Let's see you do it. Let's see you fight Tom, right? No, no, don't, don't, <laughs> don't fight. I'm against violence, right? But talk is cheap, right? We're familiar with this idea. We're familiar with it partly because I think we live in a culture where we are becoming increasingly suspicious to promises that people make. It starts with childhood, doesn't it? I remember watching a TikTok video of a sister who told her younger brother that she'll play with him after she goes out uh, partying with her friends. She'll say, you know, I'm, I'm going to come home and I'm going to play then, right? But then she goes out partying thinking that her brother will forget and, sh and just go to sleep. And what happens next is that after a night out with her friends, she comes home, she walks through the door, she sees her brother on the couch, and what is he doing? He's holding a board game, but fast asleep because he was waiting the whole night for her to come home to fulfill her promise. That hits differently, right? Like, oh, kids remember, you know, but sometimes adults think they do. Kids, if you're sitting next to your parents, elbow them and say, I remember, you know, right? Adults often make promises they don't intend to keep. And this teaches them from a very young age that words cannot be easily believed. But it's not just kids, is it? 
How often do we in our lives hear promises, but we guard our hearts knowing that this is probably not true? We politely smile and pretend that we trust and believe in what they say, but deep inside, we know that talk is cheap and we often doubt. We do this every election cycle, right? Politicians make promises. You're like, oh yeah, I'm sure that's true. We do it in social settings, you know, Christmas, family, they're bragging about what they've done and you're like, yeah, I'm sure that's true. We do it sometimes even to the people closest to us. And you know what? Living like this is exhausting because it erodes our confidence in people. It keeps us constantly on edge, not knowing who we can trust, believe, or depend on. It's not a good way to live because our society does not thrive on empty promises or polite white lies. We cannot function day to day if we cannot trust. It produces fear. It produces anxiety, it produces worry. Yet we live in a broken world where it is easier to talk the talk than to walk the walk. And you know what? We accept it for what it is. And the trouble is, we often import this experience into our relationship with God. We see how people behave and we think God is exactly the same. We tend to think that God's words are just as flimsy and fluffy as human words. But today... As we finish our time in the series on the Gospel of Mark, and as a way to celebrate Christmas, what we'll discover is that God's words, God's statements, God's promises can absolutely be trusted. And we can move from doubt to dependence, not because of naivety, but because God is trustworthy. We see this clearly in the resurrection account of Mark chapter 16. If you have your sermon outlines, we'll walk away through the passage by seeing that Jesus was really dead, but something happened that made his first visitors really surprised, which then shows us that God's words and promises are really true. And what we'll see is that God will always do what he says he will do. God will always do what he says he will do. Let's start at point one as we observe this, right? Uh, Beck has helpfully read that out for us. Mark 16 begins by describing uh, three characters by the name of Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, and they're traveling to Jesus' tomb. Right? Imagine this with me. And there are a number of details in the passage that's trying to make a point. It's trying to make the point that Jesus was really dead. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Because you see, the resurrection of Jesus, Christ rising from the dead, is not just a modern apologetic issue. It is ancient. It has always been contentious, and that's no surprise. The resurrection of Jesus is one of the foundational and core doctrines of the Christian faith because it proves It proves that Jesus is victorious over sin, over death, over Satan. The resurrection is a sign that all who trust in him are freed, are saved from God's judgment and liberated unto eternal life. And so you take the resurrection away and Christians have very little to stand on. That's why the apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 14. It says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. I'm not sure if you realize this, right? But if you don't believe in the resurrection, you have no Christianity. Resurrection is of utter importance to the Christian doctrine and faith. It is the cornerstone of the gospel promise. It is the guarantee of eternal life and hope. But 
apply a bit of logic with me. If you want to make a point about the resurrection, then you first need to talk about death. Makes sense, doesn't it? If you have no death, there is no resurrection. This is partly why Islam denies that Jesus actually died. In doing so, they can conveniently deny the resurrection as well. It's the same in our secular culture. Most are happy to accept that Jesus is a good teacher. Maybe that's your opinion. But very few, if any, are willing to accept that he died and rose again. And so it's almost like this ancient text is anticipating this question and is helping us to grapple with the issue. And so verses 1 to 3 go through painstaking detail to draw our attention to Jesus' death. Look at it with me. Verse 1 tells us that they brought spices to anoint his body. The use of spices is interesting, right? They were expensive, aromatic ingredients that showed respect and honor. It's kind of Chanel number five, right? It's kind of aromatic type stuff. And this is not the first time that Jesus is shown this kind of devotion. You think about it. You remember, Jesus was also presented with frankincense and myrrh at his birth. These are also expensive aromatic spices, famous Christmas scene, right? If you go to Westfield, you'll see, you know, a Christmas scene and baby Jesus is there. Three wise men bringing expensive spices to Jesus. Jesus' birth and death are commemorated with expensive items like these as an expression of devotion and honor and respect. It showed that these things are expensive, but Jesus is of infinitely greater value. But more significantly, and perhaps more simply, this act of using spices is a practice called embalming the dead. This is common today, though we embalm the dead a little bit differently today. But the purpose of embalming is to preserve human remains, to to prevent the process of decay, to cover up the smell of a corpse. And all of this was to show that that the women had a particular love and affection for the deceased. It shows here that Jesus is really dead. Here's another point. In verse 3, we're told that the women asked each other, who will roll the stone away at the entrance of the tomb? Now, this question is interesting for a few reasons. Firstly, it emphasizes the sheer size of that set tomb. Now, kids, you can turn to your second coloring paper now, because in the background, you will see this massive stone. This wasn't something you could easily remove. You'd have to be pretty tough and strong to do it. And so the women here express helplessness as they thought of the task. Who's going to do it? But second of all, it emphasizes that Jesus was really dead because you see, what usually happens is that the dead will be put into a tomb and a huge stone like the one we're talking about will be rolled over to cover that tomb. Now again, it's a big stone. To give you a bit of reference, it weighed about a ton, approximately the size of a concert grand piano. It's, it's big. It's not something that a single person could move. So here's what's interesting. Even if Jesus did not die by crucifixion, as some critics would say, he still would have died by being buried alive. Uh, There's no way to three-inch punch out of this like the movie Kill Bill, right? He'd be put in, locked inside with no way of getting out. Really dead. But then thirdly, it suggests that that the stone could only be moved by a miracle. That's what the author Mark is trying to hint at. 
Because you see, tombs were not placed near civilization. The dead were considered unclean, not just materially unclean. Like you look at the dead and go, oh, that feels a bit weird. It's not just that. They're also spiritually unclean according to Jewish law. So you wouldn't be around them on a regular basis. You put them as far away from people as possible. It's kind of the same today. I mean, like Rookwood Cemetery is kind of across the road, so it's a bit close. But think about it. You would never construct houses for residential living in a cemetery. Lots of apartments here, but you would never set up an apartment across the road right next to the dead. We place the dead far away from the living. That's just how we do things. And so the women could not rely on bumping into someone along the way. They could not expect to find help on their way to the tomb. They were all alone. Jesus was really dead, and what they needed was a miracle. So if you come to point two with me, as we study verses four to six, we realize this is exactly what the women received. They, they, they got there, they looked up, they saw the, the stone that was very large, but it had already been rolled away. That's surprise number one. Like, how did this happen? How did this great and huge and large stone move away just like this? Kids, do you see that? Why don't you start coloring that stone, right? But surprise number two is found in verse five. Verse five, read along with me. It says, they entered the tomb and saw a young man dressed in white robes sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. If you have your own Bibles, underline that word alarmed. In other words, they were taken back. They were astonished. They were surprised. Now, other gospel writings make it abundantly clear that this young man dressed in white was an angel appearing in human form, and he had removed the stone. And can you imagine just how stunning this entire scene would have been? Use your imaginations with me. Seeing a large stone rolled away by an angelic being you know, scriptures often describe angels as having glorious appearance, like nothing you've ever seen before. This is not your regular day. The women were really surprised. But then here's one more surprise number three. And perhaps the most significant surprise is found in verse six. The verse tells us that the women found the tomb empty. The angel says, you are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. In other words, the Jesus who was dead and buried is now alive. In light of all of this, we read the angel's words in verse 6, which says, do not be alarmed. And we think, are you kidding me? How could I not be alarmed? This is the craziest thing I've ever seen in my life. The dead is no longer dead, but alive. And friends, it's worth making a few observations at this point, yeah? Because firstly, I think we as Christians need to admit that believing in the resurrection is a stunning and surprising thing. Believing in the resurrection is a stunning and surprising thing. You need a lot of faith to believe in it. Christians, we must not underplay or minimize that this is a miracle. This is supernatural. It is out of this world. And so in our conversations with friends who are not Christians, we find that they find this hard to believe, that our posture should be one of compassion and understanding. Yeah? Because sure enough, it is a reality, a fact, a doctrine that boggles the mind. You you, you hear this and you go, can this really be? Yet at the same time, we don't have to be embarrassed about it. 
It's tempting, isn't it? Because you see, we live in a world that seeks rationalistic and scientific explanations to everything. Now remember, that in and of itself is not bad. In fact, I'd argue that the Christian faith and its understanding of a creator and design is the foundation for rationalistic and scientific thinking. The two, Christianity and science, are absolutely compatible. They go together. You don't have to leave your brain at the door on your way into church. Yet at the same time, I think we can sometimes be embarrassed by it because it seems, it looks like science does away with supernatural claims like these. And yet, I think it's important for us to recognize, listen very closely, that rationality and science cannot explain everything. Rationality and science cannot explain everything. I mean, we know that, don't we? We we know that science has its limits. It cannot explain stunning acts of kindness. It cannot explain incredible expressions of love. It cannot explain heartwarming manifestations of hope. It cannot explain radical generosity. There are some things that our minds just cannot comprehend because of how limited and finite it is. Our hearts are drawn to it even if we cannot explain it. Think about it. Asking science to explain everything in this universe is like asking a thermometer to measure everything in this universe. A thermometer is great at checking the temperature. That's what we do. But you would never use a thermometer to measure a teaspoon of sugar when you're baking. You would never expect a thermometer to measure the length of your IKEA furniture. You would never expect a thermometer to measure the distance of the drive between your home and church. It's not that there's anything wrong with the thermometer. It's just not what it's designed for. So then you see, science is not designed to explain everything. And we need humility to recognize that, don't we? So just because science does not have the categories to explain the things we see in Scripture need not cause us to be embarrassed. But more than that, we ought to be confident that the Christian faith is miraculous, is supernatural. We need to be confident that the Christian faith is miraculous and is supernatural. Why? Because isn't that a sign that God is getting involved in our lives? When you think about it, all of us are looking for some sort of miracle, aren't we? All of us are looking for some sort of supernatural intervention in our lives. And yet when we read scripture, we see it happen. We go, oh no, that couldn't be. Friends, don't you see? The Christian faith is a celebration of the extraordinary God entering into the lives of ordinary people. What we're celebrating on Christmas is God becoming man to be with us. It defies all of our expectations, but it defines our existence. And so you see, we will never understand Christianity if we only come through the lens of pure human reason. Not because it's not good. It's just not enough. It's insufficient. We need more than that. What we need is a sort of faith that is seeking understanding. A faith that is seeking understanding. Faith is absolutely necessary. And it is with eyes of faith that we apply our human understanding so that we may see and know and understand God. But here's one more implication. When we use our eyes of faith, we begin to realize that the resurrection of Jesus is surprisingly normal. 
I'll say that again. When we apply our eyes of faith to see the resurrection, we see that all of this is surprisingly normal. What do I mean by that? Well, you see, miracles are often thought of as an intrusion on natural order, right? Miracles are often thought of as an intrusion on natural order, and that's certainly true, right? You've probably heard the saying, it's a Christmas miracle, right? The word miracle is so interesting. We, we use it to explain things that don't go according to our plan or explain things that don't go according to the way we expect. We speak of things like a miracle baby, yeah? A baby that was conceived and born despite the medical odds. Oh, here's another miracle, right? You have a flat battery in your car. You keep trying to start the engine and despite the odds, as you turn and turn and turn, suddenly it goes and it turns on. Oh, it's a miracle. It worked. Miracles are often thought of as an intrusion or natural order. But you see, as we examine very closely the text, we realize that the resurrection of Jesus is not so much an intrusion on natural order than it is a restoration of natural order. It is not so much an intrusion on natural order as it is a restoration of natural order. We are told from the opening pages of Scripture that death is the consequence of sin. You and I were not created to die. We were created to be fruitful and multiply. We die because of sin and the fall in this world. We have broken God's law. We have betrayed God's love. But I want you to listen very closely. You may have never thought of this before, right? But death is not a feature of life. It is a bug. Death is abnormal. Death is the intrusion on natural order. You and I think that, of course we die. When we're born, we are on the way to death, but that's not how you were created. Death is a sign of brokenness in this world. And so we're told in Scripture that God sent His Son, Jesus, to conquer sin and death on the cross so that all who believe in Him will not perish but have eternal life. That's the reason for the season, friends. What we're celebrating today is that God came to be with us so that we can be with God. And so the resurrection of Jesus Christ, while surprising, is not so much a change in what we know. It is the beginning of what should be. What we know today is that people die. We accept that as a fact. But what should be is new and eternal life imperishable bodies, unending joy. That's how we were created. That's God's original intention. Sin ruined it. But Christ restores it by his birth and death and also through his resurrection. So that all who believe in him share in this new life that he has. Friends, the resurrection is a miracle. But it's also a restoration of what was meant to be where our life, our joy, our hope, and our meaning knows no end. And if anyone can do it, then we should not be surprised that God can. But here's one more observation before we move to our next point. Believe me, if you blink, you'll miss this. But let me ask you a question. Who was the stone rolled away for? Who was the stone rolled away for? Have you ever considered that question when you read this passage? And if you're like me, we read this and we go, well, duh, the stone was rolled away so that Jesus could come out, right? What, what else could it be? 
But then we read other passages like Luke chapter 24, verse 31, or John chapter 20, verse 19, and we know that Jesus' resurrected body could pass through walls. It doesn't explain how it works. Again, this just defies our expectations, doesn't it? But clearly, Jesus' physical body did not suffer the same limitations as ours. Jesus did not need the stone to be rolled away to leave. And church, that's when we realize that the stone was rolled away not so much for Jesus. It was for the women. It wasn't for Jesus to step out, but for the women and now us to step in. It was not for Jesus to exit. It was for us to enter in to see. It is so that we can see with our eyes of faith to firstly be surprised by the supernatural event, but it's also to assure us so that we can be confident that Jesus is able to do exactly what he says he will do. And it is to invite us to respond with faith again. That's what verses 7 to 8, that's the point that verses 7 to 8 make. The angel tells the women to go announce Jesus' life to the other disciples. And I want to take a side note very quickly. This instruction here by the angel radically subverts social and cultural norms, right? Back in the ancient times, the testimonies of women were seen as unreliable and untrustworthy. Apparently, their lack of education, their lower social standing meant that they could not be believed even if they saw this for the, with their very own eyes. Uh, back then, women could not testify in court because they were deemed to be unbelievable. But you see what's going on here. The Bible upholds the dignity and value of women. God's word challenges this cultural bias by making women the first eyewitnesses to this incredible, earth-shattering, historic event. God gave women the responsibility to be the first ones to tell the world that Jesus is alive. And verse 7 ends with the angel saying, He, Jesus, is going ahead of you into Galilee, There you will see him just as he told you. If you have your own Bibles, underline those words, just as he told you. You see, I don't have all the historical records or proofs, but I reckon this is one of the earliest historical records of someone saying, ha ha, I told you so. It's a bit of a meme, isn't it? But it's not quite. Because what the angel is saying here is this. Jesus is absolutely trustworthy. We can depend on his promises. He died just as he said he would. He rose just as he said he would. And he is now even going to Galilee ahead of you just as he said he would. I told you so. This is really true. Church, God will always do what he says he will do. And this is so helpful for us, isn't it? Because it challenges our assumptions and attitudes towards God. The Jesus we thought we knew is probably just a bigger and better version of us. He thinks like us and talks like us. And so, like us, his talk is cheap. Yet Mark 16 shows us that he is radically unlike us. He is unlike us whose words cannot be taken seriously. Unlike us who is fickle in his promises. Unlike us who changes his mind when he feels like it. No, God will always do what he says he will do. 
His name, his reputation, his glory is on the line. He can absolutely be depended upon and trusted because that is who God is. And so when we read God's word in scripture, we do not have to dabble with doubt. We can be confident in God's concrete promises. That's the reason for our hope, don't you see, dear friends? That God can actually be taken at his word. And so this Christmas and as we head into the new year, if you're a child of God by faith in Jesus, then I want you to know this. You can depend on God's word in passages like Isaiah 41 verse 10, which tells you that God is always with you. That's his name, Emmanuel, right? That God will strengthen, help, and uphold you with his righteous hand. That regardless of the circumstances that you find yourself in, you may feel lonely, but you are never alone. You hear that? You may feel lonely, but you are never alone. You may feel like no one fully understands you because what you're going through is unique. And that's true. No one can truly understand what it's like for you. It'd be wrong to expect that. But God does. God understands. He is with you and He will uphold you. These are not empty promises. God's word can be taken for what it is. You can depend on God's word in John chapter 16, verse 33, which says you have peace through him. Peace. That regardless of the trials and pressures that you're in, nothing has to overwhelm you because you have an anchor for your soul. You can be surrounded with turbulence, yet have remarkable peace because you have a firm foundation in Jesus Christ. You can depend on God's word in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 and 29, which says you can find rest in him. That regardless of the burdens and troubles and the concerns you are shouldering, whether your own, whether your families, whether your loved ones, you can cast it all upon God who knows and cares and is able to do something about it. Friends, are you listening? Do you believe in this? Or do you think that God will go back on his word? You can depend on God's word in, in James chapter 1, verse 2 to 3. That says that true joy can be found, that regardless of the pressures or persecutions you face, because of your faith in Jesus, all of this is working for God's glory and for your good. Are you listening to this? My dear brother and sister, you can survive and thrive another day because your future in Christ is incredibly bright, even if all you see is darkness around you. Do you believe in it? Do you see this with your eyes of faith? I can go on with the full list of God's promises, but I hope I've given enough to illustrate to you that God can be dependent upon. And you know what? You need this and I need this. As we live day to day, as we work, as we parent, as we play, as we relate to one another, we need God's promises to guide and guard us. And I pray that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt today that God can be dependent upon. If the great promise of his resurrection is secure, then we can be confident that every other promise we see in scripture will remain true and will be fulfilled. But here is something I want you to notice. You may not have seen this before. But in verse 8, look at it with me. It says that the women were trembling and bewildered. Underline those words with me. Trembling and bewildered. There is a sense in which this is a fair enough response. 
given this amazing encounter, right? Like, like who wouldn't be slightly on edge if you saw this? Trembling, shaking, bewildered, just, just shocked and stunned. And if you look at verse 8 with me, I'm not sure if you know this, this, but we are left with a confusing conclusion that the women said nothing to no one because they were afraid. Now, many, many biblical commentators have attempted to understand and explain this because this seems like a fairly anticlimactic conclusion to an encounter with angels and an empty tomb, right? It's like a movie you watch. It's building up and then closing scene. You're like, wait, what happened? I want my money back, right? It feels like that. You, you think they will be inspired. They'd be G'd up to go and tell the world, but they weren't. They were afraid and they stayed silent. And church, I hope this gives us a bit of comfort to know that the human faith is surprisingly fragile. That the human faith is surprisingly fragile because you see, we would think that the women's amazing spiritual experience would give them a sort of unwavering confidence to tell the world. This beats any conference you could go to, right? And yet the passage tells us that they were afraid. Fear and doubt and worry can creep in to shake our confidence and trust. This helps us, doesn't it? The Bible is unashamedly honest about human fragility. It shows us that struggling with fear and doubt, even as Christians, even after amazing spiritual experiences, are still real. Listen very closely. Christians can still get depressed, disappointed, and down, and doubt. None of these things disqualify you from the faith. Now, to be sure, there are some people who, by virtue of personality and Christian experience, have little to no fear, right? Like nothing shakes them. And it's appropriate that we look up to men and women like these as role models and examples. But for the rest of us, for many of us, even as pastors, the faith we possess is still remarkably fragile, which is why we're reminded that we are saved not by virtue of the fact that we have faith. Instead, we are saved by virtue of the one we have faith in. It's not whether or not we have faith, it's who we have faith in. We are not saved because we trust. We can all trust in the wrong things. Or we can trust in the right things, but imperfectly. No church, we are saved by the one we trust. And if we trust in Jesus, who reaches out to us by his grace, then our imperfect, fearful, and sometimes doubtful faith is received and love. He will hold on to us. I hope you see this all throughout our entire sermon series. That those whom Jesus delights in are not those who are put together. Instead, they are the liars, the, the cheats, the prostitutes, the thieves, those who are needy and know they need Christ. And if you're here today and you feel that way, I hope you know that you are welcomed here. The church is where people come together to be put together by Christ. But you see, if you look at your Bibles, and this is very interesting, right? You'll notice that verse 8 is not the end of Mark 16. Like, really, open your Bibles, right? You might be interested and ask, why did Elliot stop at verse 8 instead of going all the way to verse 20? Does he not like Beck's voice and doesn't want her to read all the way, right? It's interesting 
Because the earliest manuscripts of Mark's gospel actually stops at verse 8. Yes, the original manuscript of Mark's gospel stops at verse 8. In other words, this is where Mark's gospel ends. There is no hiding it. Some of your Bibles will make an explicit footnote stating that, right? Like verses 9 to 20 is not part of the original. Some of your Bibles will have verses 9 to 20 in italics to indicate that it's a different section. Have you ever seen that before? What's the deal then with verses 9 to 20? It's most likely that verses 9 to 20 were added on by Christians later on as a way to tie up the entire gospel writing. Because if you, if you read closely, you will notice that the material from verses 9 to 20 come from other gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There are other gospels there. They are not random sayings. They are not made-up events. They are just summary sections of other gospel writings. And so the early church retained these words in the gospel of Mark, which is why we have it today, primarily because even though they were not part of the original manuscript of Mark's gospel, they still helpfully communicate truths and realities that we see in the life of Jesus. Because it's true enough that while the women did stay silent in verse 8, they eventually spoke up. The other disciples did hear of the empty tomb. If you read the other gospels, all the men, they start running to see in order to believe. They rush to see this for themselves. They too were surprised and this news rocked the world. The women did do as they were instructed. And friends, this Christmas, I want us to realize then that the regular Christian experience is to move between doubt and dependence at various seasons. Do you hear that? We are imperfect human beings. We are not God. No one trusts and obeys perfectly every single time. And yet, growing in Christian maturity is to grow in our confidence in God's word so that dependence increasingly becomes the default. By the Spirit of God, it is possible for trust to become intuitive, for trust to become second nature. And that's the thing. When you meet Christians who have remarkable faith, it's not because they never doubt. It's because they have been trained by God and under the Spirit of God to keep trusting, to keep depending, to keep having faith again and again and again. It's not that they are better than you. It's just that their experiences were different than you. And each time, by the power and the grace of God, they've decided to trust and depend again and again. We just keep leaning on God's promises and anchoring in what He has to say to keep making small decisions each day to depend rather than to doubt. Now, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower of Jesus, then I want you to lean in real close for a moment. You were brought here today to listen to this. Because sometimes we can come under the impression that being a Christian is to have a sort of unwavering faith in Jesus. And you might feel like you cannot trust in Jesus because you don't have that degree of faith. You see your friends, you see your family, and you go, you know what, it's amazing that they can do that, but I could never. And so I don't feel like I'm worthy to become a Christian. Maybe you feel like you still have doubts and fears and anxieties. My friend, our passage today shows us that our faith is not perfect, but our God is perfect. 
He is not waiting for you to express perfect and flawless faith. He is waiting for you and saying, God, I need you. Following Jesus means turning from your sin and rebellion and and turning to trusting God is not about having it all together. Oh, we just need to keep breaking that idea, right? And you may say, well, what if I doubt down the track? I I know it will happen. You know what? There is a chance you will. But following Jesus and becoming his own means that doubt does not have to have the last word. His promises are true for you and you can keep coming back to it with confidence again and again. And so friends, church, I pray this passage fills you this Christmas with a deep sense of confidence in God's word. May that be your word for this year, confidence in God's word. A great hope for the future. God will always do what he says he will do. So as our final point to ponder for 2023, 2022, sorry, I'm way ahead. 2022, final point to ponder. Let me invite you to walk away asking this question. Which of God's promises in Scripture is sweetest to you? Which of God's promises in Scripture is sweetest to you? Perhaps you need to go back and read a bit more of Scripture to find out that one or two promises that you need to lean on, that you need to depend on. And I want to invite you this week to savor on that promise and keep reminding and keep reinforcing this to yourself. That God loves you and God loves keeping his word to you. God will always do what he says he will do. And that church is how we can move from doubt to dependence. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly father, we thank you that you can be trusted. We thank you that we by default doubt your words and your promises, but we thank you for the good news that Jesus has fulfilled all of God's promises and so he can be trusted. Help us, dear Lord, because we are constantly surrounded by messages that try to tell us who we are, try to define us and try to lead us astray. And we are crushed by these different voices and expectations and promises. We thank you that your word is a firm anchor for our soul, that we can read it and believe in it and trust in it with a deep sense of confidence. We can depend on you because you have an unwavering commitment to your word and to us. Help us this year as we move into this new year, as we have all these unforeseen challenges before us, continue to keep us as your own, keep us firmly rooted in you, And may our joy and our hope in you be multiplied as we keep moving from doubt to dependence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.